We are picking up in a new section of the Forerunners of the Faith workbook. If you'll turn to Lesson 5 in your copy of the curriculum, Lesson 5, titled Defending the Deity of Christ, subheading Athanasius and the Council of Nicaea. We are still in the midst of the patristic era of church history. We have made it through the first 200 years up to this point. Um, Going to hopefully get through the next 100 years over the next several weeks in this portion. And I believe we still have a whole other chapter. Yes, we have at least... We have one more chapter after this one before we make it to the Middle Ages. So um, we, are, we are really diving into the patristics. Does anybody remember what we mean by patristic? Just to, just to uh, jog your memory. If not, it's okay. This is all new terms. I'm not disappointed if you don't remember. Uh, it, it takes a while to get to where these terms are committed to memory. But Michael, do you have your hand up? Father. That's it, buddy. So the, the, the uh, age of the fathers, the church fathers, that's what theologians and historians refer to uh, the people associated with this period of time. And um, we're going to be looking at some more important early church fathers here. Um, I guess a more technical term would be Nicene fathers because the Council of Nicaea is at the center of the fourth century. We're going to be looking at why that's the case today. Many of you received a handout. I think actually all of you should have received a handout that deals with the Nicene Creed. We're going to look at the Nicene Creed today. How many of you guys, by show of hands, have heard of the Nicene Creed? So this is brand new for everybody. Oh, Sai has his hand up. Have you really heard of it, or are you just wanting to be that guy? You've heard of it? Okay, I'll take your word for it. Um, so guys, what, what, what we're going to be learning about, and I mean, this is no exaggeration, what we're going to be learning about today, and quite possibly over the next couple of weeks, is... I would argue the most important event in church history between the year 100, maybe to the time of the Reformation. Okay, this is, this is so important, what we're going to be talking about here, because the Nicene Creed deals principally with how we understand and confess the doctrine of the Trinity, and it deals with the nature of how we confess and understand the doctrine of Christ. Two of the most important facets of doctrine, of, of systematic theology, will be discussed over the next few weeks. So let me pray to get us started here. Um, and then our key passage for this lesson will be out of the Gospel of John, a very familiar passage that we've read uh, together, both in Sunday school and in previous uh, discipleship context. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Can I get a volunteer to read that for, directly from the workbook? It's right there on, um, on the first page of Lesson 5. Sai's going to take that. All right, let me pray, and then Sai will read from that passage, and we're going to jump in. Okay? Let's go to the Lord. Our Father, it is a joy to learn about your word and to see how it has been understood and confessed by your people throughout the course of church history. In God, it goes without saying that in your eternal decree, you ordained the Nicene Creed to be a benchmark or a, a foundational litmus test 
for Christian orthodoxy in regard to how we understand you as you've revealed yourself in your word and how we understand your son as you have revealed him in the incarnation. So, Lord God, we ask for clarity as as we come to your word this morning, as we go to the annals of church history to ensure that this this fundamental, this this seismic historical event takes root in our minds and ultimately even more important than the history itself, as important as that is, we pray that the theology and, and that the biblical realities that were confessed and ironed out during this era will be ones that we hide in our heart, that they will be truths that we can employ in our evangelism efforts, in our apologetics efforts, in our polemics efforts, and that they would be means that you use in our lives to point others to you and to sanctify us as your uh, adopted sons and daughters in Christ. We pray for your blessing on this Lord's Day. Pray you would give us spiritual rest as we as we worship you and as we rejoice in our union with Christ. And Father, that you would grant to us physical rest and emotional rest as we prepare to begin a new week as your scattered church in this community. We commit all this to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, asking for your Holy Spirit to superintend our discussion and our thoughts and to give us wisdom as we seek to accurately engage with the revelation we're going to be dealing with today. Amen. All right, Sai, take the John 1, 1 to 3 passage. Very good. So very briefly, just uh, wanted to take that passage apart. Again, repetition is so important, even if we've done this a hundred times. We want to make sure we're, we're remembering what we are discussing. And, and just to remind you all, uh, make sure you've got uh, your copy of Scripture out as we go to some of the key texts we'll be turning to, just so you can track along. But who are we referring to there in John 1, 1 to 3 by the term word? Who is the word? Jesus, right? All right, and, and, and what is the word or, or uh, who is Jesus being identified as in that passage? He's being identified as, I mean, he's obviously being identified as the word, but um, what, what else is their identification with? In the beginning was the word and the word was, and the word was, right? So he's identified as being with God and then it's identified as being in the word was God, right? So you have withness and wasness in this passage. You have the word identified as being God himself, but you also see in this text that there is a distinction within the divine essence. There's a distinction of person within the divine essence. Um, so this passage is teaching us that, that Jesus, the, the word, God, the, literally the, the very word of God himself, he is with God Okay, he's distinct from the Father, but he also is God. So he's everything that the Father is, the Word is, except the only difference is that the Word is not the Father and the Father is not the Word. There's a distinction of personhood, but there is not a distinction of essence. They share the same essence. The term we're going to use, uh, that we're going to learn about, to, to, that, that's been used historically to de- define and describe this reality, is homoousios, same substance or same being. And we're going to learn about that 
today. We're going to learn actually today at some point that theology is such a fine discipline that sometimes one letter can make all the difference in the world between heaven and hell. One single letter. I hope I just got your interest peaked uh, because this is, this is some, some very uh, important realities that we're going to be discussing this morning. But before we dive into um, really the bulk of where we're going to be headed today, I want to make sure we take some time to maybe tie up loose ends. Because I know that for many of you guys, this is all new stuff. Or if it's not brand new, it's new enough to where maybe prior to me coming on staff here, you've never heard of any of this. So it's new-ish, right? At the very least, it's new-ish. But the reality is it's probably very new, maybe brand new in many cases. So I want to tie up loose ends before we get started. We've talked a lot about God. We've talked a lot about the Trinity. We've talked a lot about Christology, right? Christology just means doctrine of Christ, study of Christ, his person, his work, and so on. Um, so my question here is just to tie up loose ends is this. As we prepare to, to begin a section of the Forerunners of the Faith curriculum that deals heavily with the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ, what are some questions that you currently have about these subjects that you would like to have addressed before we move forward? So this is the time now, before we get too deep into the weeds of this particular section, I want to make sure the foundation has been laid. I want to make sure that there's not any stones left unturned that could be useful to clarify in order to help us understand some of the concepts we're going to be looking at together. So do you have any just maybe it's like a rock in your shoe. I've addressed it before, but it's still kind of there and it's lingering a little bit. Do you have any questions of that nature about the Trinity, about about Jesus, any, any of those questions. This is the time to get those addressed because some of the stuff we're going to be discussing um, assumes kind of a working knowledge of, of some of the categories we've been discussing in previous weeks and even previous months. No questions, okay? None of y'all had any questions from the previous week or from um, anything else? No? No questions. All right. I'll take your word for it. Let's look to Roman numeral one. If you have, and guys, I just want to make this clear. If you have questions, if you have questions that come up today at any time, Make sure you take the time to ask the question. Even if you think it's stupid, even if you think it's a waste of time, even if you think we've already talked about it, ask it. Because somebody else probably has the same question. They just aren't brave enough to to ask it for themselves. I know that feeling. I hate feeling like I don't know something. So sometimes it's better not to ask. But this is why we're here. Here to learn. We're here to grow together. We're family. So Roman numeral one, a major turning point in the patristic era. This is going to get into some of the history of the Nicene Creed and the context surrounding it. I want you to to have a big picture overview of what was happening in the Roman Empire before we get into some of the the, uh, theology and and the biblical truth that we'll be discussing. So um, I'm going to read from my teacher's guide here. This is from Dr. Nathan Buznitz giving us the, the picture 
of the historical context. So he notes, under Emperor Diocletian, Christians in the Roman Empire were intensely persecuted. For 250 years, going back to the time of Nero, believers in the Roman world faced intermittent waves of governmental persecution, but that was all about to change. After Diocletian's reign ended in 305 AD, a power struggle ensued within the Roman Empire. Several years later, Constantine the Great gained control of the Western Roman Empire by defeating Maximin in 310 and his son Maxentius in 312. Part of the battle with Maxentius, Constantine claimed to see a vision in which he was told to conquer in the sign of the cross. And as a result of that experience, Constantine professed to become a Christian. That led to 313 AD, when Constantine and Licinius, the Roman emperor in the east, issued what has been known, and you've probably heard this at some point in your study of world history, the Edict of Milan. That's the first blank there in your workbook under Lesson 5. The Edict of Milan, E-D-I-C-T, Edict of Milan, M-I-L-A-N. So the Edict of Milan brought peace and legal protections to the Christian church. Followers of Jesus who lived in the Roman Empire went from being a persecuted people to a protected people. In 324, next blank that we're going to look at, should be following along, 324 AD, Constantine defeated Licinius, and became the sole ruler of the entire Roman Empire. So he defeated the Eastern Emperor and his army. And by 324, you've got one man governing the totality of the Holy Roman Empire, a, a empire that is growing more and more Christianized. The next year in 325, Constantine would go on to organize the first general church council since the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, and that council met in Nicaea. Later, under Theodosius the Great, who reigned from 379 to 395 AD, Nicene Christianity was exclusively made the official religion of the Roman Empire. So just to, just to connect all the dots, we've had a progression take place. Nero, who began reigning sometime in the mid to late 50s AD, he begins staunch persecution and opposition against Christianity. Okay, this goes back to the New Testament era. And from that point forward, through the next basically 250 years or so, you have continual persecution, opposition against Christianity. Christianity, if you were in Christ during those eras, as we've learned through our previous lessons, there's a good chance you're going to be martyred, right? Remember all the martyrs we've learned about? If you were a faithful Christian, especially if you were in leadership, you're going to die for your Christian faith. Well, we get to the beginning of the 4th century, and you have this great struggle within the empire. Didn't quite lead to a, a, a official split, but you wind up having two guys functioning in the role of emperor. You have Constantine and you have Licinius. They agree tentatively in 313 to say, hey, um, we, we need to make Christianity uh, 
a viable religion out of, out of all the options that are available. So we're not a formal Christian nation at this point, a formal Christian empire. But we recognize because of Constantine's conversion and because of Constantine's, um, and I put conversion in quotation marks, we'll get back to that in a few moments, but because of Constantine's conversion experience and his growing power in the West, the, uh, there was an agreement between the Eastern and Western Roman emperors to make Christianity a, a legal or a viable religious option. And that would set the stage for the late 4th century when eventually the Roman Empire would be Christian. And it would be Christian for a very, very long time. Now there's many pros and cons associated with Constantine's rise to power, his eventual taking over of the entire uh, Roman Empire, and his, his ardent desire to make the empire Christian. I want us to talk just offhand. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Some questions for group discussion about the historical context here. Um, let's start with Constantine first. Okay, Very fascinating character. Much spilled ink on his alleged conversion experience. I just shared with you what happened. Right, He's going off to battle and he sees this vision, he says telling him to conquer under the sign of the cross. So his soldiers, they began wearing the insignia of the cross on their uniforms, and they conquered under the name of Christ. Now, when you hear something like that, guy who's in a position of power and authority has this vision, and, and now all of a sudden he's on fire for Christianity because he's told he's going to be a great conqueror and a great king, right? That's, that's, that's how the, the story goes. Do you believe those details at surface value is, is adequate to give us confidence that he had a true conversion at that moment? What do you all think? Just, just based on the details of that story, I'll let you know the kind of guy he turned out to be afterwards. But if you just had to go off of – let's just – Take Constantine out of the equation. Let's just say to some random classmate of yours said, hey, you know, I had this vision that I'm going to start a business and I'm going to make a lot of money. I just got to make sure it's, it's, it's just identified as a Christian business. So I'm, I'm all about Christian Christianity now. I had this vision. It's going to all play out. So I'm, I'm on fire for Christianity now uh, because God has promised me some victory here. Now, that's problematic, Right. Sounds kind of like Joel Osteen theology. You know, hey, if you if you just, you know, do it all in the name of Jesus, you're going to have some success here, right? You're going to have some victory. It's kind of what we hear with Constantine. Hannah. Well, he's literally regarding the fact that he needs salvation. Like, you can't be saved without salvation. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I have issues. A lot of, let me just preface what I'm about to say. A lot of people think that the conversion was genuine, but there are also a lot of scholars that think it was not genuine. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you reasons, kind of why people are on both sides of the fence. Uh, for one, Constantine, he, he did want the nation to be open to Christianity, and in fact, he even wanted it to be Christian. Uh, distinctively, um, compared to other Roman emperors who loved paganism and loved uh, polytheism and, and other anti-biblical uh, ideologies, Constantine is a radical shift from those types of leaders. 
He also called the Council of Nicaea, which we'll talk about in just a few moments. Um, He also gave special privileges and benefits to clergymen in the Roman Emperor, which allowed them to share the gospel and be more effective in their ministry and adherence to the Great Commission mandate. So Constantine did a a lot of good um, for the body of Christ. There's no question of that. But we also know that Constantine did some questionable things. Um, He had several of his family members put to death who opposed him in any way, shape, or form. He was was very much a, um, I don't, well, maybe we can use the term tyrant. He was a hard leader. He was not a forgiving man. He was not a gracious man, which we would say forgiveness and grace is, especially with family members. It's one thing to do something in war. It's another thing to deal with with those closest to you. Constantine was a very uh, hard man. Um, He also put off baptism until his death. Speculation is the reason why he wanted to do that is because he wanted to live life however he wanted to live until it was clear that he was about to die. And then all of a sudden his faith became a lot more serious for him. And lastly, uh, and this will set the stage in just a few moments for the Council of Nicaea, Constantine did convene the Council of Nicaea, but Constantine also led a great compromise at the Council of Nicaea. Constantine was willing to compromise doctrine. He was willing to compromise truth all in a spirit of unity, in a spirit of preserving the integrity and the welfare of the Roman Empire and it's, it's speculated by people who don't believe that his conversion experience was genuine. It's speculated that his motivation for that compromise was not necessarily theological. He just thought it was pragmatic. I can't afford to lose this united empire that I've worked so hard to gain. And he knew that because of the growing presence of Christianity, and now he can't recant Christianity, right? Because it was under the banner of the cross that he went and conquered the whole Roman Empire. So he's got to stick to his guns now. So there's, again, Constantine's a very fascinating figure. That was a, a little bit of a tangent there, but an important one. You need to know a little bit of the historical context undergirding where we're going to be headed in today's lesson and in this chapter. But just know that Constantine's not black and white. Very hard guy uh, to figure out. Um, you know, David did some bad things. We also know David repented of those things. I don't, I'm not so sure if we have evidence of true repentance from Constantine, but nevertheless, we can entrust his soul to the Lord who will always do what is right. So there's Constantine. Um, but second question for group discussion, very briefly, very pragmatically, uh, before we look at a figure by the name of Athanasius and the Council of Nicaea broadly. So question, real quick, off the cuff here. Want to know what your gut instinct tells you based on your knowledge of Scripture and based on just previous discussions we've had as a group. What pros and cons do you think would be associated with making Christianity a state religion? So if Christianity becomes an official religion of a nation, what are some pros that come with that? What are some cons that come with that? Hannah? Yeah. Yeah, so con, con would be that you'd have a lot of people who just, you know, maybe they get penalized 
they get taxed if they're not a Christian, or maybe they get put to death if they they don't identify as a Christian. You'd have a lot of people saying, "Oh yeah, 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 I believe all that. I'm I'm good, right?" Big con, right? Because then you say you, you compromise the purity of the church. You got a lot of unbelievers mixed in with believers, and now Baptists weren't around at this point, uh, so um, there and there's a lot of we're not we don't have time to get into it today, but there's a lot of debate on how. Christians at this period believed the nature of the church was understood. But we as Baptists believe a true church is simply made up of true believers who are joined together by baptism after their profession of faith. Baptism is in no way, shape, or form uh, a part of salvation as it save you. But in terms of local church membership, you've got to make a profession of faith that's credible, that's, that, that's from the externals, authentic. And baptism is the outward... Um, the, the outward illustration, the outward uh, willingness to identify with Christ and obedience to his command to get baptized. And as such, those who are baptized and have made credible professions of faith are joined together in the, in the local church body. And obviously, ideally, under a banner of like-minded theological convictions as well. But uh, back to Hannah's point, con, a lot of, a lot of confusion can arise between genuine believers and, and not so genuine self-identifying believers. What else? I think I saw your hand up. Hannah said it. Okay. Ellie. Yeah. Absolutely. Like So the Great Commission... It becomes a lot easier. I mean, faithful believers are always going to be faithful to the Great Commission. But let's just be honest. If you, don't, if you know you're not going to die to go out and share the gospel with somebody, you're probably going to feel a lot more comfortable going out and sharing the gospel with somebody, right? I mean, it's, that sounds silly, but it, it's, just, it's very just reality, right? Like, we just studied 200 years of Christians having to be fed to animals and put to death and... and, 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 and lit on fire as human torches all under the umbrella of trying to be faithful in their Christian witness. And now all of a sudden I can go and I can be a Christian. I'm encouraged by the government to be a Christian and and, and the clergy and the churches are benefiting from the emperor because of their Christianity. Yeah. Like great commission becomes extremely vibrant at that point. Any other thoughts on pros and cons? Uh, did one of y'all have your hands up? Sai? Oh. Right. Raise your hand high. I couldn't see it. Um, and it'd be a lot easier for people to come to know Christ. Yeah. Yeah, so, well, I mean, if Christianity is now being uh, at the forefront of a, of a, of a nation, then you're going to have a greater production of Bible and theological related resources, which is going to help create uh, firmer convictions about what you believe from Scripture and why you believe what you believe from Scripture, uh, which is going to lead to better discipleship. It's going to lead to better missions. It's going to lead to, uh, to, to, to greater expressions of piety in the life of believers. Absolutely. So yeah, that's that's that gets. I mean, there's more pros and cons, guys. But the big ones that I I put one major con for me is the the one downside. I mean, there's more, I'm sure, but the one downside that comes to my mind is that if you have a nation that 
uh, that, that just overtly identifies as Christian and forces people to do the same, you have a seismic blending of unbelievers and believers within the church. It causes confusion about the nature of saving faith. Um, it causes insincerity, uh, insincerity amongst the church about, you know, who, who really who really does believe this stuff and who really doesn't believe this stuff. There's confusion. There's ambiguity. But on the pro side, great uh, ability to now share the gospel without fear of significant or any persecution. And now, as we're about to see from the Council of Nicaea, the church isn't on the run so much anymore. So it can, it can sit down, gather together, and begin to formulate and, and, and solidify their beliefs better. And what we see in the Nicene Creed is exactly that. The church getting together to say, okay, what do we really believe from Scripture about God? What do we really believe from Scripture about Jesus? And, and there's also other councils we'll learn about in the weeks to come that show us some of the fruit, some of the pros that come with having a Christianized nation. Any questions or additional comments on the historical context undergirding this portion of church history before we start looking at some of the scripture and theology? Okay. We'll move on now to Roman numeral two in your workbooks titled Athanasius and the Council of Nicaea. I'm going to read again from Busnitz. He notes that Athanasius lived in the 4th century from around 298 to 373 AD. He pastored the church in Alexandria, Egypt. And the central theological issue in Athanasius's day was the deity of Jesus Christ and the closely related doctrine of the Trinity. So that blank under Roman numeral 2 the deity of Jesus Christ. That was what Athanasius was most known for. And Athanasius, as Busnitz notes here, he defended the deity of Christ rigorously throughout the course of his life and ministry. And as a result, he was instrumental in keeping the church from falling into serious doctrinal error. Some have even called Athanasius the saint of stubbornness, because he refused to compromise his defense of the truth. Before becoming the bishop or the lead pastor of the church in Alexandria, Athanasius served as a deacon under the leadership of a man named Alexander. That's kind of funny, I think. Alexander of Alexandria. Pretty, pretty cool how that worked out. Um, but one of the elders in the church, and this is big. This gets us into the council now. So Athanasius is serving... In Alexandria, Egypt, under the the leadership at this point of a man by the name of Alexander. So Alexander and Athanasius and the other spiritual leadership of this church are serving. And there's this other leader in the church, guy by the name of Arius, who began to teach that Christ was a created being who was not eternal and therefore not equal to God the Father. So this is the rise of Arianism. Now, does anybody remember from previous studies what modern cults in our day and age, and, and as developed throughout their history, what cults have taught or currently teach 
Arius' view, the view that Jesus is not eternal, that he is the first and greatest created being from God the Father. Y'all remember, the, the, there's two big ones that we've talked about. Sai, thank you. No, not Buddhist, but good guess. What's, what's it? Mormonism, there's one of them. Sure, I guess you could say, I mean, in the sense that Jesus is a creature, but not the first and greatest created being. Because where Arius would probably take a higher view of the, of the God-likeness of Jesus than, than Muslims would. But that, that is, you know what I mean? Because like, we're talking about he's, he's not, he's not uh, eternal God, but he is great. He, and that, that, was the, that was the trick or the slipperiness of Arius. Jesus is this great, he's this great redeemer. He's this great savior. He, he, he's glorious, but he's just not eternal. He's, he's not co-equal or co-eternal with the Father. So he's still great. He's the greatest of all creation, but he's not, he's not of the same substance as God the Father. We're going to talk about that a little bit more, why that matters. So, we taught, so one of them was Mormonism. There's one other big one. Uh, they're all over the place. They may have even swung by your house at some point to try to evangelize you. Jehovah's Witness. Yep. And, and really remember, Jesus is... is um, make sure I get this right here because I always, I always botch the, the, uh, the family relation of Jesus according to uh, Jehovah's Witness theology. Let me make sure I get this right for the sake of you and the sake of our um, listener here. Let me pull up my trusty little... Apologetics guide. Bear with me here. Phone is not cooperating with me. Here we go. Yeah. So Jesus, before he lived on the earth, he was actually Michael the Archangel, according to Jehovah Witness theology. For whatever reason, I, I always want to say that um, Jehovah's Witness believed that they were brothers, but um, no, he was actually, they, they actually believe he was Michael the Archangel before he became Jesus of Nazareth. So I'm, I always botched that, wanted to make sure I got that right for you guys and for the listener. Um, any case, so Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, continue to teach Arianism, and as Charlie said, even even like Muslims, and there's other groups out there that they don't, they obviously don't believe that Jesus is God, right? So in a way, you could you could even take the argument further that um, they're, they're Arian-like in the sense that Jesus is not God in their religion or their worldview. So um, thanks for thanks for pointing that out, though, Charlie. Very important there. Um, so, anyways, moving forward, though, so Arius he's, he, Arius comes out of the woodwork, right? He's 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 a fellow spiritual leader with Alexander and with Athanasius. They're at the same church. They're impacting the same people. Put yourself in their shoes now. Okay, this is very. I think this can be very practical for us today. Imagine you're at a church, and you've got spiritual leadership who can't agree on what they believe about Jesus. Could you imagine being just an ordinary layperson in such a context, where you've got a debate going amongst leadership? Is Jesus really co-eternal with the Father? Or is he just this great created being, the first and greatest of all the beings that God the Father created? Imagine being in such a place. Okay? And then imagine this. Arius is a lot more popular than Alexander and Athanasius initially. 
So people love Arius' view. He was, he was a wordsmith. He was a, a brilliant public speaker. He actually developed a chant that his followers would chant in the, in the marketplace and, and, and outside the church. It became a rallying cry that Jesus was the greatest created being. So he's, he's persuasive. He, he's popular. He's got everybody starting to follow him. And you've got Athanasius and Alexander over here trying to deal with this controversy. And it spreads outside of Egypt. So not only does it become relevant for your church over time, now it becomes relevant for the whole region of churches. You've got a full-fledged controversy now. So are we going to say something? This has a follow-up question. Yeah. Um, at this point, uh, going into the Council of Nicaea, all 27 books would be identified as canonical by the Council of Nicaea. So, um, yes, at this point, there would have been consensus shared that the 27 books of our New Testament was um, can- that it was canon, that it was canonical, that it was authoritative. Them, couldn't they point them to 1 John or John 1 passage? Yep, they, they could. Um, and as, as the saying goes... Everyone, everybody has their problem text. Um, Arius would have gone to passages that show Jesus not knowing when he's going to come back and say, see, look, you know, he's not God. God knows all things, so he can't be God. He doesn't know when he's coming back. Uh, he'd go to like Proverbs 8 where it talks about the wisdom of God being created, and they'd say, see, Jesus is the wisdom of God, and wisdom's created, therefore... Jesus was a created being. There's all kinds of loopholes that Arius would go through to try to justify his belief. Yeah, and guys, this is let this be a lesson, guys. False teachers, they're not dumb people, generally. Um, now, unfortunately, in our day and age, there are some pretty dumb false teachers out there. They, they, they really don't know a lick about the Bible. But in these days, and, and historically, most false teachers... They knew the biblical languages. They knew theology. They knew philosophy. They knew how to be persuasive. They knew how to argue. Yeah, at least the good ones. That, hence why this, this heresy is still around today. You know what I mean? Like if it, wasn't, if it didn't have some weight, it, it wouldn't be around 1,700 years later. Anyways, um, moving on though now. So we're Alexander... You've got Alexander and Athanasius versus Arius at this point, and now the controversy is it, is it is getting beyond their church. It's infiltrated their region, so much so that in 318, there was a regional council in Egypt. All the different churches surrounding Egypt came together. They said, what are we going to do about this? Everybody's divided over this issue. Well, that eventually led to the convening of Nicaea, Council of Nicaea, where every church leader in the Roman Empire received an invitation to attend this meeting. And Constantine is the one who called it, 325 AD. So every single church is represented here. This is the greatest theological battle that the church has experienced thus far since the Council of Jerusalem. That's even more widespread than that battle was. Because Christianity is far more widespread at this point than it was in 49 A.D. or 50 A.D., whenever the Jerusalem Council took place. So, you have three blanks here. Three blanks. And in in my teacher's guide, it says, At the council, three primary positions on the deity of Christ were put forward. Okay? 
These are the three options that all of these leaders ultimately came up with as being viable in light of the biblical evidence, okay? Let's go through them together. First, heterousios. I'll spell that for you. H-E-T-E-R-O-O-U-S-I-O-S. Heterousios. That means of a different substance or of a different being, of a different nature. The, the Greek usia just means, it can either mean substance, it can mean nature, it can mean being. It's all referring to the same reality there. So, so first option, this is Arius, okay? Jesus is of a different substance. He's of a different nature than God the Father. And noted, and I think this might even be in your workbook as well, um, but in my teacher's guide, it says uh, that, that Arius taught that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was a created being. Thus, he argued Jesus was of a different substance or essence from God the Father. On this basis, Arius contended that Christ was not equal in authority or deity with the Father. Put simply, Arius denied that Jesus is God, teaching instead that he is a creature. Now, um, look at Arius. He even got the creator-creature distinction right. If Jesus is not of the same nature of the Father, if he's not of the same being or essence of the Father, and all that is not God is creature, then of course Jesus has to be created then. So even, the, even a guy like Arius got the creator-creature distinction. He, he was better on that than, than some of our contemporary theologians are on the same issue. Now number two, blank number two, and this is the right view to hold. Homoousios. Homoousios. H-O-M-O. O-U-S-I-O-S. Homoousios. Same substance, same nature, same being. In contrast to Arius, Alexander and Athanasius insisted that Jesus Christ was not a created being. Rather... He is the eternal Son of God who is co-equal to the Father. Because God the Son is eternal just like the Father, He is of the same substance or essence as the Father. In other words, Alexander and Athanasius affirmed that Jesus is God, teaching that He is not a creature, but the uncreated Creator. Now, here we go, guys. This gets back to some of the stuff we talked about last week and, of course, in previous lessons as well. How on earth can there be two somethings identified as God without there being two gods? Right? I think that was something that Arius may have been trying to guard against. Well, we know God is one, and we know there's a creator-creature distinction. So how on earth can we say that Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal to God. How can we do it? That, that, that was a very real question Arius had. And to give you guys something to chew on, if you ever run into a smart Jehovah's Witness or a smart unbeliever who would make the same challenge, you just, you just tell them. You say, you know, we, we, we don't distinguish essences. We distinguish relations, inter-Trinitarian relations. 
The Father eternally begets the Son within the divine essence. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. So the, the only thing within the divine essence that differentiates the persons is their relation to one another. They're not of different essences. We can, dif- we can distinguish, we can differentiate between personhood without having to say that they share different essences. Um, and of course, the reason we can do that is because existence and essence is identical in God. Whereas with us, it's not identical, right? Me and Wit, we share the same essence. We're both human beings. We're different persons, right? But the reason why we're not the same as God is because our essence and existence is not identical. If wit ceases to exist, I don't cease to exist. The human nature doesn't cease to exist. I'm still going to be here. If I cease to exist, wit's still going to be there. He's still going to be Whit Martin. He's still going to have the human essence and he's still going to exist. But if God ceases to exist, then the divine essence ceases to exist. And if the divine essence ceases to exist, then the person ceases to exist. So that's the reason why we can, we can, we can somewhat, in our minds can't fully wrap our heads around it, but we, we know it's not wrong to differentiate between persons within essence. We do it all the time with humanity. The only, again, the only reason it's different, though, is because with humanity and with all creatures, existence and essence are not identical. It's identical in God. Um, I probably went way too deep there for you guys. But nevertheless, um, if you're paying attention there, that might come in handy down the road. And hopefully as you continue to get exposure to this truth, it'll stick um, better. So heterousios, different substance, view of areas. Homoousios, same substance. That was what was ultimately confessed at Nicaea. And we're going to look at the Nicene Creed here in just a few moments. Here's the third view that Constantine really liked. Homoousios. Homoousios. H-O-M-O-I. H-O-M-O-I-O-U-S-I-O-S. Similar substance. Similar nature. Similar being. Oh, sorry. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, I can get you to spell it afterwards, Lily. Um, but do you see why? So let me read you the description of homoousios, and I want to hear if you guys. I want to make sure you guys understand why it's wrong, why it's bad. Um, as Busnitz notes, when the original position of Arius was immediately rejected by the bishops attending the council, a modified version was put forward. It suggested that the Son of God was of a similar substance to the Father. Arius and his supporters shifted to this position, using the language of similar substance to minimize the differences they said existed between the Father and the Son. Alexander and Athanasius refused to accept this position because they rightly understood that similar still means different, right? Let's just say, let me make this very easy for you guys to see why this is the case. If I say that uh, Rebecca and Michelle look similar because they come from the same parents, they look alike, does that mean they're the same, right? 
They're, they're just, they're still, there's still differences, right? And if we're speaking of God's essence, right? If we say it's a similar essence, well, okay. There's the creator essence. And anything not creator is creature. So even if the creature has a similar essence to deity, because that essence is not identical to creator, and because everything that's not creator is creature, you still have a creature. You still have Jesus as a created being. And you still have him as being different in substance to God. But this sounded a lot better. Sounded a lot better to Constantine because he knew that, hey, if, uh, you know, if we can just compromise here, you know, Alexander, Athanasius, all you guys that's raising a big stink. Hey, listen, he's not saying he's different. Like, I mean, similar, but he's, he's not completely different than the father. And you guys, Arius, I mean, y'all can tone it down a little bit, right? I mean, Jesus, he, he's pretty similar to the father. Let's all just get along. This isn't that big of a deal. Well, my friends, let me be as emphatic as I can for you and for the listeners. In this case, I said it earlier, I'll say it again. One letter, one letter is all the difference it made between orthodoxy and heresy, between heaven and hell. That is how fine of distinctions exist sometimes when engaging in the discipline of biblical interpretation. No, And I'll say this as well, just for clarity. You cannot willingly reject Jesus Christ as co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and be a Christian. You cannot do it. I don't care how sincere you are in, in that. I don't care how good of a person you are. Fundamentally, you must hold to the view that Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal and of the same substance as God the Father in order to be a Christian. We must be willing to champion that. It is the biblical reality. And that brings me to a discussion question. As seen in these three possibilities that were ironed out at the Council of Nicaea, the biblical understanding of Christ's deity and a heretical understanding of Christ's deity all came down to a single letter. What does this observation indicate about the nature of doing biblical interpretation and engaging in the discipline of theology? What does this imply? If a single letter is all the difference it makes between right and wrong, orthodoxy and heresy, heaven and hell, what does this mean then? Should we engage in theology flippantly then? No, absolutely not, right? Should we view theology as, as just something that, hey, like it's really not that big of a deal, guys. doesn't matter what you believe as long as we just love Jesus. No, absolutely not. Um, as, as, my, uh, as one of my former mentors said, Dr. Stephen Lawson, we are not dogmatic on this point. We are bulldogmatic. That is how immovable we are on this point. Um, we're not just dogmatic. We are bulldogmatic here. And that is our calling as believers. We must, we must be willing to stand for the full deity of Jesus Christ 
even to the point of death. Because as soon as we give up the deity of Christ, we no longer confess and believe in the biblical Jesus. We no longer have a Savior who can atone for our sins and who can mediate between God and man. This is truth worth dying for. Okay, so how did it end? How did, how did the Council of Nicaea end? Well, after weeks of discussion, the council overwhelmingly affirmed the homoousios position, declaring their belief that the Son of God is of the same substance as God the Father, as the biblical position. God the Son is co-eternal, co-essential, and co-equal with God the Father. He never had a beginning. God has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Co-essential. He's of the same nature as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Co-equal with God the Father. Jesus is nothing less than God the Father. He's equal in power, glory, and dominion within the divine essence. Now, of course, we can distinguish, as we will in future lessons, we can distinguish between the human nature of Christ and the divine nature of Christ. We're talking about the divine nature of Christ at Nicaea. Now, I want to give you guys a little bit of a historical vignette. And uh, how many of you guys uh, believed in Santa Claus as a kid? Yeah, I did too. It's okay. Um, and guys, hey the, go- hey, the gospel is great enough to where even if you believed in Santa Claus at one point, there's still room for you in the kingdom of heaven. So, uh, you know, I was, I was one of those kids uh, that believed in Santa Claus. Um, we will not be letting our kids believe in Santa Claus. And I would argue that, that parents should not either. Uh, but we can talk about that some other time. Um, but let me tell you, the, let me tell you about uh, the real Santa Claus, the real Saint Nick. As, uh, as historically testified at the Council of Nicaea. One interesting tradition suggests that a bishop named Nicholas of Myra lived between the years 270 and 343, attended the Council of Nicaea, and he got so outraged by Arius's denial of Christ's deity that he got up during the proceedings and punched Arius in the face for blasphemy. And over time, that same Nicholas was the one who became known as St. Nicholas, eventually Santa Claus. So anytime we think of Santa Claus, think of a godly man who was so passionate for truth that he walked up to a heretic and punched him right in the mouth for blasphemy. That's the real Santa Claus. I'd rather believe in that Santa Claus uh, than the guy that goes down people's chimneys and uh, eats cookies and drinks milk and all that kind of stuff. Um, So guys, let's read through the Nicene Creed though. So what was it that was confessed? What was the outcome? Remember, that's where we're at right now. What's the outcome of the Nicene Creed? I mentioned to Sai earlier that after the Nicene Creed, or excuse me, after the Nicene Council took place, you had the, the declarative assertion that all 27 books in our New Testament is canonical. So by this point, you have universal recognition throughout the Roman Empire that the books we have in our Bible, in the New Testament particularly, are the Word of God. But this creed, the Nicene Creed, this is the formalized declaration of Trinitarian orthodoxy that arose from the Nicene Council. In other words, this is the doctrinal statement. This is the statement of faith that was produced 
after the Council of Nicaea. There's many scripture references included here. Um, we're not going to look at these. We don't have the time to do that. Guys, I would encourage you, though, if you get bored this week, you have spare time, or you're looking for something intriguing to study, take the Nicene Creed I've given you, go to all the scripture references there, and see how what's being confessed in this document comprised basically 1,700 years ago from today. See how this is saturated in the Word of God. Let me read it for you guys and for the listener here online. The Creed says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all of things seen and unseen, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us all, for our salvation, came down from heaven, was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. And he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. That was the byproduct of weeks of debate of godly spiritual leaders going to the word of God and trying to articulate for the church in generations past. Literally, guys, this doctrinal statement has been the standard of Trinitarian orthodoxy for the past 1700 years. What does that mean? It means to willingly reject this doctrinal statement is to willingly reject how the church has understood the Trinity and the deity of Christ for over, just coming up now on 1,700 years. So guys, this is a very important doctrinal statement. We need to ensure that we are Nicene and that we are biblical in our understanding of the Trinity and of the deity of Christ. And that's going to bring us to our... Conclusion today, Lord willing, next week there's a discussion question in a green box right before Roman numeral three. We're going to pick up where we left off by addressing that discussion question by way of introduction, and we'll jump right back into where we left off, looking at some more significant figures that um, in the years following the development of the Nicene Creed, in the years following the Council of Nicaea, these figures would still have to battle people who tried to undermine the Nicene Creed. It's not like the Nicene Creed came out of the Council of Nicaea and then everybody's saying kumbaya after that. No. In a very real sense, the opposition got even harder. People fought even more vehemently against Nicene Orthodoxy. And the true believers, the, the godly men that were raised up to defend these truths from Scripture, they had to fight all the more hard. They had to stand all the more faithfully 
in contending for the faith that had been once for all delivered to them from sacred scripture. And my friends, that is what we are called to do as well as we have opportunities to do so. Let me close in prayer um, and we will be dismissed for our time of corporate worship. Hope to see you guys uh, this week and um, please feel free to join us tonight at Table Talk. We've got a meeting at 530. So let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we are amazed at the riches of your glory, the riches of the glory of your son, the riches of the glory of the Holy Spirit, which proceeds from you and your son, as we've just read from the Nicene Creed, which we don't believe simply because it was developed at a council. We don't just believe it because we we feel like doing so on a whim. But Father, we, we recognize it to be biblical. We see it saturated with biblical truths and and biblical themes that are of essentiality to the faith that's been once for all delivered, the faith that we've come to embrace as our own. So Father, my prayer is that as we leave this place and as we continue our study through forerunners of the faith in the weeks and months to come, my prayer is that we would always take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ by, by reflecting on generations past, seeing how they defended biblical orthodoxy and see how they advanced your gospel to all the nations and God that we would see their example that we would see it ultimately being rooted in scripture and that we would follow suit Lord God that we would follow suit because it is our duty to do so because it is our earnest desire for us to honor you and to be good and faithful servants with what you've entrusted unto us Lord I pray that For the rest of this Lord's Day, our hearts would be attuned to you, to sing praise to you, to pray to you, to sit under the proclamation of your word. Lord, to to be vigilant in our desire to worship you in spirit and in truth. And then to go this week, be your scattered church, to impact others for the renown of you and the advancement of your kingdom and their spiritual good, Lord, that others would see Christ in us and through us and hear of him by our testimony and that we would play a part in the redemption of saints, Lord, that have not yet come to faith, Lord, that you would draw your people who are in this world to yourself, that we would be a part of that. Lord, would that be our greatest prayer and desire as we gain head knowledge that we can share with a watching world. We love you, God. We thank you for the privilege it was to join together this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you for these young men and women who were hungry to learn about your word and to apply its truths to their lives. Thank you for the families that they represent. I pray for your immense blessing upon them in these days. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.